This episode of Above and Beyond is sponsored by Compassion International. To sponsor a child today, simply visit Compassion.com slash above. Heartfelt. Genuine. Passionate. A bunch of the words that come to my mind when I think about this opportunity to sit down with Alvin Davis, who is a tremendous Mariner that I grew up emulating in the backyard in wiffle ball games. And the Mariners were fledgling when he came to town. They were struggling. They were expansion franchise. But Mr. Mariner became Mr. Mariner because of his character, because of his faith. And he still resonates, not just because of what he was as a baseball player, but what he is as a man and a man of faith. I knew of the man he was, but I had never met him before we sat down and had one another in tears. We found a connection here that was so incredibly unique. It's the connection that comes with faith and sports. And this is the longest podcast that you've heard to date. And part of it's because he brought out stories in my life, two of the real faith mile markers, one in high school for me and one in college, that as we just sat down and shared our journey of faith and sports and made that connection that only faith can do in this realm of sports. Yeah, he brought out some of my journey and I can't wait for you to hear his journey. Did you grow up in a home where the Lord was was present, where faith was a part of the conversations? It's interesting you ask that question because I heard a sermon a few uh, years ago that just talked about the legacy of faith. This is back in 2014, and I had an opportunity to ride with my mom. We went for Thanksgiving dinner with my aunt and cousin, and we're riding in the car together. And I said, "Mom, do you do you remember the first story of the first person in our family that came to faith. And my mom's 96 years old, so she's 94 at the time. And she thought about it, and she thought about it, and she thought about it, and she called out a few names, and eventually said, she said, no, I, you know, there's there's been a believer in our family ever since I can remember. I, I've never heard the story of the first believer that, that came wow. to Christ. So, How did that shape your home? Dramatically. I mean, my mom was involved in ministry, as I just mentioned. My dad also, you know, he came to the Lord a little bit later in life, but uh, yeah, they were, they were married and active in the church. He taught Sunday school. My mom was a choir director. And so I, I describe it as we were that type of family that was there. They were there when the doors open, mm. there when the doors closed, mm. and sometimes in between choir rehearsal and midweek Bible study, teachers meeting, that type of thing. So huge in my life. Brothers and sisters? Three older brothers, two still living, one I lost very early. That's a part of my faith story as well. Uh, he was uh, stabbed when I was uh, five years old. Yeah, we lost my brother Howard. And uh, yeah, yeah. So just the Lord being there for us and guiding us through that is is a huge part of my my upbringing and just learning about faith and questioning God. You know, as a five year old, and you know, why did this have to happen? Uh, mm. You know, a, a very uh, popular question when it comes to to life. But uh, yeah, older brothers and uh, yeah, cousins. My my aunt was in the church. My uncle was in the church, and so yeah, we we're, uh, we're we were a big time church family. You remember that at five. Yeah, I, you know, I have vague memories of it. You know, we, we've we've talked about it, of course, over the years, and uh, um, and my mom is just, you know, I've asked her the story, especially if I, as I've gotten to be an adult, just trying to piece things together, and and um, you know, just thinking about my faith journey and how God's been there, and uh, just just filled in those cracks, and you know, He doesn't always answer those questions of why things like that happen, but uh, but He has given us. His presence and His faithfulness has been there throughout my whole life, and so I don't question Him because of that. How did that impact your home? 
Um, very dramatically. You know, it, it impacted my mom um, very deeply. Um, my mom has the gift of discernment. Like she just, she just gets these feelings about things. And, and my brother Howard went to a graduation party uh, after high school. And my mom just had an uneasy feeling about him going out that night and she begged him not to go. And, you know, you know, being a young person and just one of the greatest days of your life, right? Graduating from high school, he wanted to go celebrate with his friends and, and, uh, things didn't turn out so well. There was a, there was a beef there at that, that, uh, party and he tried to defend a friend of his and, uh, someone was carrying a knife and, and, uh, stabbed him and killed him. So it's, it's, uh, it's impacted my mom really deeply. Um, uh, another part of my faith journey is a few years later, 1970, we lost my dad. Um, he had, uh, he had a, uh, aortic aneurysm and, uh, they had under, undergone, um, open heart surgery and they had used a kind of an experimental at that time, uh, surgery, um, uh, pig valve as a replacement. And mm-hmm. we, we never did an autopsy. Um, but, um, we're pretty confident that that, uh, graft didn't hold. And, uh, so that was, that was, those are some dark years in our family. Very, very challenging, very challenging for my mom. Uh, my dad died in my mom's arms just a few years after my brother Howard had been killed. So, Where did sport, Alvin, come into any of this? In your home, with your brothers? You were the youngest of four. Yes, yes. So was sport always a big part of that in the Davis home? Yes, sport's always a big part. Uh, my mom grew up playing baseball. Uh, she actually mom played. Did. Yes, mom actually played baseball and softball. Uh, my grandfather, my mom's dad, was the coach. Uh, yeah, and she's got great stories about playing. They, they called it hardball and softball. And uh, they played both uh, hardball and softball. This is, you know, my mom was born in 1920. So we're talking the late 30s, early 40s, playing on a women's team. Travel ball, you know, an early version of what's really popular nowadays, (laughs) travel ball. They would travel around the Inland Empire, down to the desert, play against other women's teams. And uh, And grandpa was a skip. Yeah, he was a skipper. And uh, she said he was tough. Uh, you know, uh, we, we lost my aunt year before last and actually last year. Yeah. 2016 that, but it was interesting to hear mom and auntie tell stories about playing hardball, you know, auntie playing when she was pregnant, catching, catching when she was pregnant. So yeah, grandpa was a tough skip. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my mom's living history. I I love just talking with her about, uh, just, you know, what, what was it like when the stock market crashed, you know, in 29? I mean, she, she still has vivid memories of those times. To answer your question, yes, yeah, sport was in our family before I was in our family. Wow. Now, does she have the sweet swing? Is that where it came from? Was she a lefty? I'm not sure. I think she was a right, right? She was a right. Yeah, I think she was a right, right. And she was more of a speed player than me. I couldn't run a lick, so I didn't get that gene. <laughs> but mom was more of a speed player and, uh, you know, always been the leader. So she's kind of the go-to gal and, you know, hit in the middle of the lineup, played in the middle of the field. Oh, was it always baseball for you? Yeah, you know, football was a part of our family. My 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 brother Mike, who's next older to me, uh, next older from me, um, played at San, San Fernando uh, High School. Uh, a name that you might be familiar with from San Fernando, who was a teammate of his, was Anthony Davis. Wow, uh, the USC running yeah. back, Cincinnati Bengals, and and uh, so Mike went to San Fernando, and then he went on to UCLA. Um, he got hurt his freshman year in UCLA, tore his rotator cuff. And, uh, you know, back in the early 70s, the surgeries are not what they are now. So that was took him a couple years to come back. He went back and played at Long Beach City College and then Long Beach State, but uh, never had the NFL uh, opportunities that uh, we had hoped that he would have. Was sport, as you reference those tough times and the loss of your brother and the loss of your dad, was sport a respite, an escape? Was sport a hyper-competitive 
What, how would you characterize and kind of put in context what sport and faith was in your home with your mom's leadership? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a blend, Brock. Um, I guess, you know, our, our family is very competitive. Um, but um, at the same time, it was a respite for me personally. Um, losing my dad, I did not play that year. Uh, in 1969-70, I didn't play sports. You know, there's just so much going on with the family. I was nine going on 10. So I didn't play that spring. You know, it was really hard on the family. Another detail of my dad's passing is that um, he passed away the day before my brother Mike's birthday. Mm. And uh, so that was just that was just really, really rough. You know, as hard as it was on my mom, as close as it was to my brother Howard's death. And then the day before my brother's birthday and just there were there was just a lot of why uh, a lot of why in our family. When I did go back to playing, you know, the, the competitiveness was still there. Uh, you know, Mike was playing and my brother Bill was playing at, the, at, at that time as well um, in high school and college. Yeah. So sport was kind of always there. I think it it, it was in not not nearly on the same level as our faith, but uh, but just a sense of normalcy. I love Alvin. I don't know. And we'll get to your future and the big leagues and everything else. I don't know about you, but I, I, I love people that ask why. You know, my teammates through the years, you know, I'd much rather, Revelation talks about hot or cold, don't be lukewarm. And those that may be cold, but ask why, why, why? And when you say, you know, we were kind of searching for a lot of why, and you're nine years old, you're not 20, you're not 30, you're not 40. You're digging into those things at nine years of age. How did that shape you? Oh, man, deeply, very, very deeply. As a nine-year-old, as much as we were in church, as much as we were taught the Word of God, as much as we sang praises, and, and it was just woven into the fabric of our life, what will happen now? Where will God be? Where was He when all of this was happening, and where where will He be now? And uh, you know, I think in some ways, um, you just kind of have to wait and see. You know, you just have to wait and trust. But, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying, Brock, because uh, uh, the Christian faith is a faith that stands up to the, that, that question. Um, God pro- provides a lot of answers to that question. He provides it in his word, the Bible. Um, he also provides it as you walk with him in trust and sometimes with not that much trust. You know, um, there are plenty of instances in the scriptures where a man came to Jesus and, you know, said, Lord, if you can. And Jesus said, what do you mean if I can? Can you hear Can you heal my son? And, and uh, Jesus said, you know, if you can, you know, all things are possible to him who believes. And, and I love the man's response. It's such a human response. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's fine with that question. Yep. You know, uh, the, the notion of God, uh, that he's altogether different than we are, he's fine with questions. They, they don't threaten his existence. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think he really welcomes those earnestly seeking questions because he wants to show himself that he is a faithful God, that he's a loving God, that he's a caring God. You know, to your answer of that level of humanity and what he wants from us and knows us, that even his son who knew what was coming still in those final moments of why, why are you forsaking me? And answering that why probably continued through your teenage years. Yes, definitely. So, you know, my, my years of high school, they were, they were in some ways hot and cold years, but they were some of the most defining years of my life. When you grow up in the church, as I did, there all the time, kind of all you know throughout all your family. Um, you, you've kind of got, you got your, your life at home, your life at the church, and then you have your life in school and life in sports and all of that. And, and uh, you know, my peers were, were doing things that I was not allowed to do, wasn't permitted to do. Uh, they always made it sound exciting and fun. Uh, so, you know, there was a curiosity there, you know, my, let's be honest about it. You know, what, what's this world thing all about? You know, what is this, what is this, you know, what we would call sin thing all about, you know? 
And uh, but but uh, at the same time, it was a really uh, a proving time for my faith. Uh, you know, just learning how to pray and seeing answers to prayers. And and not not when I say that, I mean not the prayers that we offered as a family. You know, praying for our food. You know, mm-hmm. uh, praying for our church. But my own individual prayers and seeing those prayers answered. And, and I think those were some of the most establishing. Um, points in my life, you know, just praying prayers and seeing God answer them. Interesting you bring this up. And I haven't thought about it in a long time, Alvin. I didn't think, in fact, it was at a speaking engagement I had last March. I spoke at Northwest University and this woman came up to me at the end of my speaking and said, Hey, before the night ends, I need to talk to you. And I was like, okay, you know, and just kind of was seeing folks and my wife was there with me and, and I could feel this kind of woman waiting and waiting. And, and eventually um, the night kind of was coming to a close. She came up to me and she said, um, you got in a car accident in high school. And I had not thought about that accident in, this has been 20 years. And I said, I did. What she didn't know is what you're saying. One of my prayers, I believe it was my junior into my senior year was, Lord, I want to just want to feel your presence more, right? And I don't know what your prayers were in high school that you said were answered, but I just make yourself more real, which I think a lot of us in our walk and our faith journey, if we're honest, kind of ask either aloud or we think. And I had written that down, something I had not done before, journal, and I would written that down, and it wasn't there long after I got in that car accident. And it wasn't a significant one. It was just in our neighborhood. A gal had run a stop sign, and her mom was dying of cancer was in the passenger seat and I struck just behind the passenger seat. Boom, big collision. I get out of the car and she is sobbing. She thought this accident, she was going to lose her mom. And I came over to her and I comforted her and I said, we're going to be okay. Everything will be okay. Mom is okay. You know, she felt terrible and I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, we're going to be okay. Long story short, and to spin back around to this woman at the speaking engagement, she said to me, you were in an accident in high school. I said, yes, I was. She said, you ran into my sister and my mom. And I said, I have not thought about this in 20 years. She said, what you don't know is your reaction to that and the faith that a 17-year-old had in that moment moved my sister and my mom, who was dying of cancer, into a place spiritually they'd never been before. They said, if this 17-year-old high school kid can have this peace and this calm in this moment, then there's something real to this. There's got to be something more to this. I'm just sobbing at this moment, right, uh, to an answered prayer, and um, and he does answer prayer, and he answered my prayer back then. I remember coming home and sobbing even more and looking at my journal. You are real. You are real to a 17-year-old. You are real you know, in this world that we can live in. You do hear our cries. Your cries in high school and your prayers that were answered were, can you give me an example? Was there a moment? Oh, man, it's it's interesting because some of them happen on the baseball field. Again, when we're talking about our faith journey and the things that are on our minds, some some to my to some people might be trivial. And if we're talking about someone being healed of cancer mm-hmm. or being delivered from disease, yeah, that's that's some heavy duty stuff. But sometimes it's the smallest things, you know. And I can remember praying during games, you know, Lord, we need some help here. Can, can we have some help? And and uh, the help would come. Now, you know, I know the players played and mm-hmm. we executed. We did all of those things, but. It was like, man, I, I just have this feeling that God is hearing my prayers, and he's answering my prayers. Why would God care about a high school baseball game, Alvin? When someone says that, and maybe uh, 
who knows who's listening to this podcast today hears that and says, oh, come on, Alvin. There's a lot bigger things for God to do than to care about some high school baseball game that you played in in Riverside, California way back when. You say? I say God cares about the smallest details. I don't think he takes sides as far as who, who's going to win and who's going to lose. But I do think that he, I know that he cares about the smallest details. And I know that he knows how to establish the faith of those that believe in him. Did your faith live out in your sport? Yes. As I grew older, more so than as I was younger. You know, high school was kind of a, a foundational period for me, transitional period. Um, as I went into college, went into Arizona State, that was probably the darkest time of my entire life spiritually. Mm. Um, just, you know, going in that college scene, um, having more freedom as a young adult to make choices for myself and going into that with a curiosity about, you know, what is the world all about? You know, what is, what is all of this fun that my friends are always talking about, all about? And I began to get into that. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's the darkest time and the best time at the mm. same time. How so? I was never satisfied with the choices that I was making. This was my first three years at Arizona State. There was never a satisfaction. I always felt uh, a sense of, of conviction about the choices that I was making. I was never fully satisfied with them. They were, like the Bible says, they were, they were enjoyable for the moment. Mm. But on the after, I, there was just something really deep inside me that knew that it was wrong. And uh, I think the, the, the biggest problem that I had, Brock, was that I had this attitude in myself as I went to Arizona State, you know, that, Lord, thank you for bringing me this far in the journey. Um, you know, having the opportunity to go to Arizona State was a dream come true for me. Literally, I had dreamed of going there since I was a sophomore in high school, playing baseball for Jim Brock, you know, wearing the maroon and gold, all of that. And uh, when, when I had that opportunity come true, I just, I was full of pride. I was really proud of myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of mix that together, pride with a curiosity about, you know, what this party life is all about. And you, you, got, you got the recipe for some bad choices. think mom felt that did she know that all right alvin's gonna go away to school here he's gonna live out his dreams a lot of pretty girls at asu a lot more freedom than he's ever had i think mom had that discernment that you had to walk through some of these decisions yes i know she did because she was right there that's the interesting part of my story brock uh the lord worked it out to where my mom ended up moving to arizona state she ended up moving to arizona with me lived in tempe worked in the uh, school districts in phoenix just the way the circumstances worked out, you know, God's providence from my perspective. Mm. Mom was right there with me. She was praying the whole time, ministering to me, you know, challenging me, holding me accountable for my decisions. But at the same time, she had told me, you know, this is something that you have to do. This is this is a time in your life where you've got to make your faith your own. You've got to learn how to make wise choices for yourself. 
And uh, but she was always there, you know, always there in the background. And those those were great years, too. Uh, you know, when I uh, especially right after I got out of college you know, when I tell people my mom went to college with me, you know, they go, oh, he's a mama's boy. But then, then they hear the circumstances and sure. they're like, wow, that's that's a God thing. And uh, she, she not only was mom for me, Brock, but after I graduated, signed with the Mariners, went on to play in the minor leagues. She was able to mentor young men like Odomi McDowell, uh, Barry Bonds. You know, Royal Clayton, who's Royce Clayton's older brother, um, they all live with her as Arizona State athletes. Coach Brock trusted her. Mrs. Brock trusted her. And so she she was the team mom even after I left. Wow. Wow, that's legacy. Yes. Wow. Did you have any mentors, Alvin? I think one thing we've learned in many of these podcasts is just about everybody can point to, for you, it sure sounds like mom was bedrock. Do you have other athletes, other teammates, other people in these years, these formative years in high school and college, played an integral role? Yes. You know, uh, my high school coach, Rich Stalder, uh, played an integral role in my life. Um, I play. I, I told a story not too long ago uh, to want some of our players in minor league camp here back in spring training and uh, just talking about maturity and, and growing up. And uh, one of the stories I remember is my sophomore year in high school, um, I was invited to try out, you know, to work out with the varsity team. You know, not JV, but with the varsity. And so this this was a big deal. You know, I'm going to be a sophomore on varsity. And uh, I was still a kid. And we had these early morning, two-a-day practices. You know, coach worked us really, really hard. Second day of practice, I overslept and was late. And uh, so, so I showed up to practice and, you know, coach said, Alvin, why were you late? And uh, I told the truth in immaturity. And that was my mom forgot to wake me up. <laughs> <laughs> you know where this is yeah. headed, right? Yeah. <laughs> Wrong answer. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong answer. So, uh, so Coach Stoddard said, "Well, Alvin, here's here's your discipline. Uh, you're going to run around the perimeter of our athletic fields at the high school. One time around is about three quarters of a mile. You're going to run around this without stopping until we're done with this practice. And it was probably about an hour left in practice. So, you know, I, I did a few miles mm. running around." And uh, when I got done, he called me over and he said, Alvin, this is also what you're going to do. You're going to go home. You're going to open up your piggy bank. You're going to get your own money. And you're going to ask very, very nicely if your mother would please take you to the store and buy yourself an alarm clock. And you will never be late to a practice again. Wow. And you weren't. (laughs) I wasn't. That was a defining moment in my life. And uh, I I grew up a lot that day. And Coach Stalter is still a, a good friend. Uh, we still have lunch together. He actually spends the summers in the Northwest, so he's mm-hmm. able to go watch the Mariners play. And mm-hmm. I am honored every time I have the opportunity to do something for him because he meant that much in my life. You know, other mentors, Chuck and Barb Snyder, um, you and I spoke earlier about our team chaplains for us and the Seahawks and mm-hmm. uh, how instrumental they were in, in our life. You know, young marrieds, uh, I was talking about Chuck and Barb the other day with someone and just how... You know, Barb's passion to teach the Bible, you know, the precepts uh, teacher and just studying the word so deeply. And then uh, Chuck's passion for what I called ministry to the up and out, uh, you know, just his 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 ability to connect and uh, and and do evangelism with folks who are very, very successful, but but hurting very, very deeply. And the two of them, the world's most opposite couple, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when they came together, uh, just, uh, you know, shaping us, mentoring us, teaching us how to, how to have a vibrant marriage. Uh, as you know well, Brock, uh, professional sports is devastating upon marriage and family. 
Yeah. Um, the divorce rate, you know, the, the rate of brokenness in, in pro sports is off the charts. And so to have some folks like Chuck and Barb um, from the word of God, which is uh, the standpoint that my wife and I had chosen to do our life, mm-hmm. um, just mentor us and be an example to us and love on us and teach us the word was just, uh, I'm forever grateful. Let's do this. Let's get to your three years of college where you talk about where mom moved and you had your kind of curiosities met at times, though empty. Um, what was the time? What was the moment where you're like, all right, enough's enough. Like I've, I've dabbled in this world. It's not fulfilling. It's, it's empty. Was there a, was there a turning point? Was there a, okay, I've got to take more ownership being a grown man, was that getting drafted and ending your collegiate career and moving on? What Take me through that window of opportunity. I'll, I'll tell you the long version. Uh, 1980, I played uh, in Alaska for the Fairbanks uh, Gold Panners, and uh, we won the national championship, the NBC tournament, which was considered the national championship of summer baseball. Played on a great team. Harold Reynolds was on that team. Uh, Kevin McReynolds was our center fielder, you know, number one draft pick the next year by the San Diego Padres. Mm-hmm. Just had a really, really good team. That was the 80 gold panthers. That was the 80 gold panthers. 80 gold yes, panthers. yes. And I had a really good summer um, going into my junior year, you know, starting the fall after that summer, um, junior year draft eligible, you know, in the, in the June 81 draft. Yeah. Big year for me. Everything that I had worked for, everything I had dreamed about was lining up. Uh, you know, going into the fall, you know, written up in Baseball America, all of this stuff. And, you know, trying to do it on my own. You know, that was the spiritual background of it. And, uh, okay, here it is. This is the moment I've been waiting for. I, I've got to take advantage of it. And we got into the spring in 81, Brock, and uh, I was just trying so hard, just chasing results, you know, trying to trying to get that number one draft pick, you know, the signing bonus, the ability to help and change the destiny of my family at that time, mm-hmm. and all this pressure. Um, we get to about mid-season, and um, I'm just not doing really well. And Coach Brock comes and says to me, you know, there's there's something wrong. He goes, I, I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong. I want you to go, go get checked out. I'd lost weight. Um, and so I was diagnosed with a condition they call valley fever, uh, which is you know common down in the desert, all the spores and the dirt and all that kind of stuff. Just it's a viral thing. You kind of get run down, and then uh, about two weeks later, I broke out with a case of shingles on my back, mm. and uh, those things just started to get my attention. It's like, man, what what is going on here? You know, biggest year of my life, and and what it was, it was pressure. Just just trying to handle all this pressure, trying to chase these results all on my own, and. Uh, it's such an interesting year, Brock. You know, we went on and won the Pac-10. We went on to win the College World Series. So we were national champs. I'd played on two national championships teams within a calendar year. And yet I was drafted, drafted by the Oakland A's in the sixth round, which was great, great to get drafted, but not what I had hoped for. And uh, there was there was this hollowness and this emptiness that ran throughout the whole year. It was It was the weirdest year of my life. You know, externally, everything was going really well. I mean, I was all packed in. You know, we were champions. We were, we were national champions. Got drafted, but just inside, I knew something was wrong. And uh, the Lord just was getting my attention. And so after the draft, we sat down and talked with the A's. And, and the defining moment probably in my entire life happened during that conversation. My brothers and I didn't have representation because I wanted to keep the option open to come back to school. 
And um, and we were talking, going back and forth, talking about money, where I would start, all of this kind of stuff. And I was kind of a kind of a bystander. My brothers were doing most of the talking. And and finally, the scout uh, asked me. Uh, he he made a statement. He was ready to bring it to a close. He made a statement. He said, Alvin, he said, uh, you need to sign and you need to take this bonus because you'll never have a better year than you just had. And Brock, this this light went on. It just went on. And I, and I said, that's not true. That's not true. I can have one year of my college year where the Lord is in control and I'm not. And that thought just went through my head. And, and you know, within a couple days, I went, went off by myself. Um, got some time alone, just me and the Lord, just talking to him, mm-hmm. reconciling, repenting, you know, saying I was sorry for trying to do things my own way. He had my complete and utter attention. Mm-hmm. And um, at during that time alone, you know, I, I said to him, this is what I remember saying to him. I said, Lord, you know that I want to play baseball. You know that I want to play in the big leagues. But... Um, I will do and go wherever you want me to go and do whatever you want me to do. Um, whatever happens, I will, I will do what you want me to do. Uh, you know I want to play, but whatever, wherever you lead, mm. I will follow. Mm. And that was a turning point of my life. Theologically, maybe that's the point I got saved. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, uh, but I know that my life has been dramatically different on the inside from that day forward. Mm. Control. Yeah. Did you verbalize that in that meeting at that moment or do you tell your brothers afterwards or how did that, you, you painted that so yeah, beautifully. I'm yeah. trying picturing how that meeting ended with brothers that were doing all the talking. Yeah. Well, you know, at some point we had to, we had to respond and I had to say, you know, that I'm not going to sign, that I'm yeah. going to go back to school. And it didn't come out, you know, eloquently or, or it wasn't all nice and neat and packaged. It was, it was more of a paradigm shift within my own heart. Yeah. And uh, as I went back to school in 82, you know, it was, it was funny, too, because my entire journey, the Lord had me surrounded. Coach Brock was a believer. We had Bible studies, you know, at school. Um, Elmer Hebert was a uh, missionary who ran a bookstore in Tempe called Quo Vadis Books. And he was our chaplain. And so he would lead chapels. We had spent time together. Mm. He was right there the whole time, mm. you know. And so, you know, I, I said, you know, one of the things I need to do is I, I need to build a closer relationship with Elmer. I need men in my life that will help and mentor me on, along the right path because I, I know the other path and yeah. uh, I don't need any help there. Yeah. <laughs> I need yeah. help on the right path. Mm. And so 82 was just a great year. That's my senior year. Um, got drafted in the same round by the Mariners, uh, which was which is awesome. You know, I, I've loved the Mariners. Mm-hmm. I, I had a love affair with the Mariners like I had with the Arizona State Sun Devils. That's one of the reasons I'm still a Mariner to wow. this day. They've been my team since the 70s. Mr. Mariners for real, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even before him. <laughs> that was the nickname uh, that ultimately became, but that was a dream come true. Could you feel when you were playing, we would always say, and I remember many of my Christian teammates, Alvin, we would pray before games, say, audience of one. Just play for an audience of one. And that one was not myself. That one was an audience of one from above. Let's let's make our play just such that he can rejoice. Did you feel that your senior year? Those are you. You, you got me tearing up. Those are some of the sweetest times of my career. I learned that as I went along, um, because you remember, Rock, the early days when I was with the Mariners, we had a lot of futility. Of course, it was exciting. My rookie year, my second year, everything was new. But as you've experienced, at some point in your career, it becomes about winning. 
um, becomes about being successful. And, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, 85, 86, you know, we're nine years in as a franchise, never had a winning record. It's like, wow, we, we've got to get over the hump. And I think in 1986, we lost 102 ball games. That was the most losing I'd ever been around in my life. And, and I was miserable. Mm. And, you know, I said, you know, through the help, Marty Martinez was one of our coaches on the staff that year. And Marty helped me a lot. He had been a, a rover, infield rover while I was coming up through the minor leagues. And we had a close relationship. And, you know, and Marty helped introduce me to the fact, you know, you need to you need to learn how to play for more than just the, the wins and losses and your results on the field. And so that began what I now describe as transform, transforming play into worship, which is what you just described. Mm-hmm. Every day we have the, the opportunity as believers to transform competition and play into worship. Are competition and play very important? Is it, is it important to compete? Absolutely. Is it important to have fun? Absolutely. These things are not mutually exclusive. They're actually very compatible. But as you mentioned, Brock, just having that inner feeling of knowing that that the Lord has given you this ability, he's given you this opportunity, and ultimately he wants you to glorify him, man, it just transformed it. And those those prayers before the game were just mm-hmm. some of the sweetest times. It, there, we all want to have that sense that what we are doing is right. And I think that can connect with everybody who's hearing this program. Mm. When you go to work, um, the person you're married to, the way you're raising your children, your relationships with your neighbors, regardless of what it is, we all want to have that inner sense that this is right. And that's how that felt, Brock. Mm. When I was on my knees before a game praying to the Lord, it was like, this is what I'm born to do. And this is how I am supposed to do it. And you could have joy. Absolutely. Even in adversity. Even in adversity. Even, you know, it took till 1991. So we're talking six seasons later before we finally got over the hump um, and had our first winning season in franchise history. So there were there were more ups and downs, you know, that in seasons that came ahead. But just being able to sit in my locker after a game, Brock, and, and just ask myself that question. Did you give it your all to the glory of God? Because every other question, there's there's a there's a space between every other question after that. You know, did you, you know, did you take, did you swing at the right pitch? You know, did did you read that ball in the dirt? You know, did you get a good jump on that ground ball to your right? Those were secondary to that one main question. Because I just had that sense that you know what, if I can answer that question affirmatively on a consistent basis, all those other things are going to take care of themselves. about your eyes because everyone I pointed to and chatting and kind of preparing for this said two things almost to a man about Alvin Davis what a nice man oh what a nice man oh got a great smile what a nice man and then I heard on a couple other occasions oh you got to have him tell you the eye story major challenge major challenge in my career um you know maybe in the big picture affected me uh long term but um but in the short term it was just a miraculous story uh, I showed up for our, our team physical in 1986, and um, I could always read the bottom of the eye chart, Brock. That was one of the reasons I was such a good hitter. 
I, my, the Lord just blessed me with outstanding vision. And so, you know, we're going through the routine, physical and, and all that stuff. And I go to see the eye doctor and uh, he has me cover my left eye first. I can read the bottom of the eye chart, you know, probably below that. And then he has me cover my right eye and I look out and it's blurry. And my first reaction is, oh, man, I must have some mucus or something in my eye. So, so I, go to, I go to wipe my eye and I look again and it's still blurry. And uh, the doctor, Dr. Common uh, was his name. Dr. Common says, uh, hey, what's, what's going on? And I said, Doc, it's, it's really blurry. He goes, really? Oh, yeah. I, I can barely read like past 2020, you know. Mm. And, uh, and the only reason I could read that is because I knew what it was. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, that kind of started the journey. And, and, and Doc did some t- testing on me and uh, found out I had a condition called keratoconus which was a steepening of the uh, cornea in my left eye, which caused me to have astigmatism. We tried glasses, but um, just wasn't corrective enough. And, and how it impacted me as a player was I, I didn't have the depth perception that I had before. So it was really, really hard for me to recognize like spin and depth on breaking balls. And it was very, very difficult for me to go to the right as a fielder, because my right eye was obstructed as I turned my head to track the ball. And I, and I, so, so I had a lot of clanks off the heel, you know, I wasn't clean in the pocket on ground balls to my right. And I had, I was just struggling on, on uh, breaking balls and changeups. And so we went the glasses route and, and that didn't correct it. And so we had to go deeper. And so we, we went into uh, the contact lens uh, route. And so I went to Virginia Mason High School and uh, met with a couple doctors there. And uh, Dr. Nick Itani was uh, the one that really, really uh, changed things for me. The bitoric lens, which those who know about eyes will know what that is. It's a lens that has, has two curves, was, was really cutting edge at that time. And um, Dr. Nick was able to uh, design a, uh, a bitoric lens, a lens with two curves, one mm. to adjust for the good part of my eye and one to adjust for the bad part of my oh. eye. And uh, it was quite a bit of trial and error. You know, we had to, we had to get the, light, the right size. I was not a contact lens wearer, so I had to get used to wearing something in my eye. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to decide whether it was going to be two lenses or one lens. Um, the steepness of the curve, the power, all of that stuff. And eventually we got it right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, things literally came back into focus for me. And, you know, it was just a miracle. It was a miracle of the Lord that uh, we found that solution. The idea that God is in sports against Arizona State. My redshirt freshman year, we played down there. And we completed a fourth and 17 pass. And like out of nowhere. And all the things that turned, it was in the last minute of the game, it was crazy. And I had said after the game, man, there's some divine intervention involved for all of these things to happen. And I got crushed. I had pastors writing me, like, you're very immature in your faith. Stop talking about God caring about sports. He doesn't care about a stupid pass you made. And I did radio shows back then, I remember, and, and, uh, and hosts talking about it, and people ask me about it. Really, come on, God doesn't care about sports. How do you tackle that? How would you defend that? How did that live itself, manifest itself in Mr. Mariner's life? We encountered that. I say we, you know, a number of our guys on the Mariners back in the early 80s were believers. Uh, I think about Mike Moore and Harold Reynolds and Dave Valley, and, you know, the list could go on, Brian Holman. And uh, I remember one year, I think it might have even been that 86 season, during the off season went through some controversy with the Mariners. And uh, um, 
the Mariners made the decision in the offseason, which I totally respect, um, that they, we weren't going to allow to have Chapel in the locker room anymore. They didn't want cha- baseball Chapel in the locker room. Caused quite a bit of a, a upheaval in the uh, in the media. Um, and I got some phone calls right after the World Series. It was when the announcement was made. You know, what's your reaction to that and different things like that. And the the debate was was live, you know, uh, as you mentioned, amongst clergy as well as you know, mm-hmm. amongst folks that uh, are, that don't profess Christ. And uh, and it's a great question. Um, I don't know that I have the perfect answer to it, uh, but I do know for for example, reading the scriptures that God cares about human beings down to the finest detail. Um, again, do do I think He cares whether or not the Cubs won the World Series or? You know, whether whether, you know, who wins the World Series. I don't think that really matters to him as far as taking sides in that manner. But the intimate details of every day, I know that he cares about because that's what the scriptures say. Does it show up on a completed pass on a fourth and 17? I don't know. Probably does. Mm. When he's trying to make himself known uh, to one of his children or someone that he's drawing. The baseball chapel goes away. And I'm sure the Mariners weren't the only organization. I'm sure there were some then. How did it come back? Did it come back? What role did you guys play with your chaplain to work through that process? You know, we uh, decided together that we would respect the, 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 or, the organization's decision and, and not fight against it. We were able to work out a compromise eventually, and that's how Baseball Chapel came back. And the compromise was, um, could we have chapel at the ballpark before anything was scheduled. And the Mariner said, yes, yes, you can. And so we had to have our chapel before it was time to stretch or, you know, time to be, uh, be wow. dressed and in uniform. And, uh, and that worked out. That worked out really well for us. I, I was one of the chapel leaders. Um, and I had to take responsibility for some of the sources of, of the Mariner's decisions because we were a little sloppy. With our timing, um, we, 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 we let chapel run over into stretch far too mm-hmm. often, and I could have been a better leader and probably prevented that from happening in the first place. And, you know, sometimes when you're on the road, um, you know, uh, guys get there at different times. You, you kind of know a guy's coming and he wants to, 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 to attend chapel, but he's not in the clubhouse yet. And you got to be out to stretch in 10 minutes. And, you know, chapel goes over 12 minutes. And so as a manager now on the PD side, I wouldn't want half my team out for a stretch mm-hmm. on time mm-hmm. and the other half doing something different. Um, when it's time to go to work, it's time to go to work. And so I do take some responsibility for that as the chapel leader. Or maybe you'd have bought them all alarm clocks, yeah. got into their piggy banks <laughs> yeah. and said, you all are going to go buy an alarm clock <laughs> yeah. and you're going to have this chapel. Otherwise, you're going to run around this stadium yeah. <laughs> 800 yeah. times until we get going. Yeah. Did baseball help define and answer questions in your faith? My career in baseball was more affirming than anything else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could go on and on and on the ways that that God affirmed it. You know, maybe this will fit in somewhere, but one more quick story. Sure. In 82, after I signed with the Mariners, um, uh, even, even my decision to sign wasn't all that simple. My mom comes in again, big time here. I I sat down with the Mariners. They had offered me the, the contract. Wasn't the money that I had been offered the year before by, by a pretty good margin, about 25% of what it was the year before. Uh, it was a nice little chunk of change, but wasn't going to change our life. We'd be able to play, pay a couple bills, but that was going to be about it. 
But at the same time, I had been offered a uh, full-ride scholarship to work on a master's degree in educational psychology from Arizona State University. So I had another option. And, you know, I wrestled with this decision, and, and, I, and I asked my mom, I said, Mom, what do you think I should do? And she gave me some of the greatest counsel I've ever received in my life. I've never forgotten it, and I never will, and I pass it on as often as I have the opportunity. She said, Alvin, I can't tell you what to do because this is your life. And this is a decision that you have to make. But I will give you this advice. Whatever you decide to do, don't ever look back. Don't ever look back. And that was just amazing counsel for me because it Mm. freed me up to go play baseball. Mm. I I knew if I went the educational route, which was kind of the safe route, if you can imagine, um, that I would always wonder, Brock, did I have what it took but didn't take the opportunity? And so it freed me up, and I and I went and you know and played, and kind of the rest as they as they say is history. But you know God's providence. We just talked about that. Mm. I signed with the Mariners, got on the plane, was assigned to Double A, which was pretty unusual, right out of college. Got on a plane, flew from Phoenix to Boston, was picked up by one of the clubhouse attendants in Boston, driven to the ballpark, and literally I walked through the gates of the ballpark. The first person I met was the chaplain. Coincidence. Some would say. Not. I say, answer to prayer. That's exactly right. Because here I am, and I, and I wow. had been praying, Lord, you know, I know that this is a tough life. Mm. I'm going to be away from family. I'm going to be away from friends. I've been around ballplayers my whole life. I know how they live. There's going to be temptations galore. Mm. I need you. I need you. The first person I met when I entered into professional baseball was the chaplain of the team. Is there anything else on your heart that you'd really want to share and kind of impart in in a pretty unique platform we have in this podcast deal? Yeah, you know, Brock, you know, the one thing that, that is on my heart is I want everyone that I come in contact with to at least have the opportunity to ask questions. Um, you know, to, to bring it out of the realm of, of just the faith. I don't know that, uh, that people know really what the Christian faith is all about. And that's kind Mm. of my passion. Mm. And, um, you know, I will say that, that there is evidence, you know, it's not a blind faith. Um, the Bible is a historical document. Um, it is, it is affirmed more than any other historical document by a wide margin. And uh, there, there are answers to questions that people might have. It, not necessarily the why from day to day, but is, is this legitimate? Is our faith based on something real? Or is it more like superstition? Mm. Something that makes you feel good about life, makes you feel good about yourself, makes you feel good about circumstances, the way the universe works. It's more than that. Christianity mm. is more than that. And so if there's one thing that I would encourage folks to do who might be listening to this program, and that is to ask questions, but ask them in a way that they want to know and find the answers. Mm-hmm. And if they're willing to follow where the evidence leads them, I think they'll come to one conclusion or another, and that is it's true or it's not. Above and beyond the intersection of faith and sports. 